Alive from lovely, livable Queens, New York. No longer in Jamaica. Moved since the last time. This is in the bin. The number one source for news and views on argument, debate, rhetoric, oratory, all that good stuff. I'm Dr. Steve Yano. Welcome. Welcome to the new in the bin, which is a live stream. Apparently, you can watch us on youtube.com slash Steve Yano on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Sophistic Steve. Uh, LinkedIn, you can just follow my profile on there. I think it's like LinkedIn. Just search for me, Steve Yano. And then, of course, if you don't, can't catch the live stream or you're busy and you have to leave early, you can always get it on anchor.fm slash in the bin where our archive exists and on Spotify now. So uh, we have a great episode today with old friends joining us is the canonical uh debate lab and we are joined i'm joined by timothy high who is a software engineer and founder of canonical debate and bentley davis from reasonpedia.com thank you guys for being on the show today great to have you and you guys are the first live streamed in the bin guests ever ever fantastic great to be back yeah we've Uh, had you guys on the on the bin before or in the bin before So it's good to have you here. And today we're talking about epistemic security, which I really don't really have a good sense of what that is. So hopefully I'm going to learn something today from both of you and uh, we'll dive right into it. I assume, I'm going to make an assumption. I assume that when we're in a world where half of the Republican candidates from the midterm election believe that the election was stolen and that they um, continue to shop that story around, even though there's no evidence that the election is stolen, that that might be something that we're talking about in terms of epistemic security, but I'll let you guys define it, maybe. That was my assumption. Yeah, something like that. Um, Let me start by saying I'm not an expert on the subject. It's a subject I've been studying lately as part of our work in the Canonical Debate Lab, um, which is studying debates and the importance of getting true information and uh, you know, trying to get the facts all organized. Um, so as part of this, I started writing some articles. The, the, my first one is up right now about hybrid warfare, um, which is maybe it's a term related to epistemic security. Um, and it's a term that's more common going around these days. Um, but let me define epistemic security as I understand it. Um, in the academic field, and there was actually a conference. It, like not everyone in the academic fields understand this term too. So it's one I'm trying to promote and get people to think about. But um, there was some conferences in the UK of people trying to study epistemic security, and they put out a really great uh, paper um, that maybe we'll link to later. I didn't even get you the link, but I, I can give that to you. But um, Epistemic security is related to epistemic processes. So um, they discuss how different communities or societies have epistemic processes. Um, And one uh, common epistemic process that we understand well is the scientific process, right? The the scientific community has a process for how they come to accept things as fact or how they believe things, right? Epistemology is the study of things we believe and why we believe them, right? Uh, So that being said, um, maybe some epistemic processes are better at getting the community to uh, have more factful beliefs, fact-based beliefs, um, or what they call true beliefs. Um, 
and some are worth of it. And there's also a question of, you know, how long does it take for a community to come to a consensus over these things and do they ever do that? So, you know, that, that relates to the quality of an epistemic process. How good are they at getting to the facts and getting everybody on the same page in terms of those facts, right? So uh, in the meantime, uh, I think in around the year 2000, that started getting into the military vernacular, um, what's known as psyops. I mean, it's tactics that have been around forever, right? But psyops is um, strategies, operations uh, organized around attacking the intelligence of um, uh, an organization, right? Or, you know, a nation or whatever you're trying to attack. And so PSYOPs are different tactics for essentially disrupting the information systems of, of your target. Um, out of that comes these techniques of hybrid warfare and so on. It comes these tactics, these techniques. And the way it's been described in the, in the community that discusses epistemic security is essentially these attacks are uh, epistemic attacks um, things in a community's epistemic processes are known as, uh, that, that make it vulnerable to these kinds of attacks are known as epistemic uh, uh, vulnerabilities, right? Um, and you can have what's called attack vectors, right? So essentially it's what are the different techniques that people use to disrupt the ability of a community to discern the truth, right? That's essentially, and so epistemic security is the opposite of that. What are the things you can do to protect yourself against that sort of thing? And I think you exactly hit on a major point, which is we live in a nation right now in which a very large percentage actually believes that the election was stolen two years after the election has ended, right? Um, so, you know, it either was stolen or it wasn't stolen. The fact that we haven't come to a consensus on that two years after the fact shows there's certainly something wrong with our current epistemic process as a community. All right. Yeah, very thorough. Very interesting stuff. I had no idea about the connection with PSYOPs. That's something we have to talk about a little bit more. Uh, Bentley, what do you have to, to add to that? What's your view of epistemic security? Yeah, I was, I was thinking uh, along the same lines, but also uh, just to give some kind of other examples is, you know, several years ago, uh, some operatives from Russia uh, may have I'm not saying government sanction, sanctioned, uh, but uh, were, um, you know, created a, um, you know, uh, stirred up multiple uh, groups to have, um, uh, to have uh, protests on the same street in the same city at the same place at the same time, um, which isn't so much like beliefs, but it is stirring up our beliefs. And, and, and to get those people riled up enough they're like they're spreading and misinformation so also in knowing that those types of attacks are happening and being able to um and then having our epistemics and our social uh setups to where we're not always getting um angry at the other side and othering people would kind of reduce the effect of those type of attacks from other countries um, so that's that's kind of in the same valley. Like I was, I was wondering whether we could call it epistemic terrorism, where you're disrupting a community or a or a state by um, making the citizens believe two different things. Um, right. Right. Uh, so yeah. 
That's a, that's that's a clickbaity title. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, like I would, that I would, stuff, as you know. Yeah, I might push back on the term epistemic terrorism because you know I guess that maybe the definition of terrorism is is uh, acts that are intended to cause some kind of terror or panic that are that are meant to have an outsized impact in terms of the fear it causes in in the witnesses of that act, right? Um, and uh, epistemic security and epistemic attacks, specifically in the under the framework of hybrid warfare, which is where where I'm looking at this from mostly, is the exact opposite. Because one of the main features of hybrid warfare, you know, because if you think about it, what is hybrid? Why is it hybrid? This is something I've been thinking about a lot. And the you know, one of the definitions for hybrid warfare is oh, it's not just war. Uh, on the on the ground, boots on the ground, and weapons and actual killing. The, it's war, psychological warfare, war on all fields, right? So it doesn't. So that's one definition definition of hybrid. But the other part of hybrid is really who is conducting this warfare, right? Mm. And one of the main features of hybrid warfare and epistemic attacks is the target does not necessarily know they are at war, nor that they are under attack, right? Right, which is the exact opposite of terrorism, right? Um, the, the point is you infiltrate and you do things that disrupt uh, people's ability to discern what's going on to the point they don't even know where these are coming from, right? And if you think about um, Russian interference in, in US elections and that sort of thing, the idea is, is not to let it known who is uh, doing those kinds of attacks. And in fact, uh, one part of it being hybrid is essentially at some point, you don't have to do anything. You just let it go. You create the division. You find, you, you can help essentially feed um, different groups information that may or may not be true. Um, and it's information catered to what they want to believe. And they will propagate it themselves. They'll even come up with new things, elaborate and that sort of thing, kind of like, you know, urban myths or whatever. It takes a life of its own. And you don't have to be the one that is doing the attacking, right? Yeah, this sounds like, um, I want to talk about the terrorism uh, metaphor. That interests me because of some of the things I was thinking about in terms of traditional epistemic security or the way we look at it from the humanities. But I think maybe we ought to explore the technical side first. And the question I have for both of you is about, this sounds like propaganda to me. So what are the differences between what's going on now and something like Tokyo Rose or dropping leaflets from the plane in the in a, a Ber La Siege of Berlin and things like that? Like traditional kinds of, I mean, this is all technology too, using the radio uh, to get uh, that kind of um, interference and say, oh, you know, you guys are all going to die if you come and do this. We're winning the war, et cetera. Uh, what's different now? I guess, you know, the thing that Bentley was talking about is you had the investigation in the last election of how many fake Twitter accounts were run by Russian companies that purported to be different political parties or even state governments or county governments. Uh, so is this... Is it, is it useful to think of epistemic security using those old metaphors of propaganda or have we crossed into something that propaganda doesn't quite account for anymore we're like beyond that um that kind of a of teaching i would i'd say that there's a there's a mix of techniques and some of them definitely fall under old uh propaganda i i think 
like you mentioned, the propaganda gets easier these days. Like in the past, if you're dropping leaflets from a plane, they they know the leaflets came from a plane. And so uh, they kind of get a feeling of the source. Now, like radio, um, it was you could make it sound like you were broadcasting from the BBC, but really coming from Russia. Um, so then you're able to seem like an authority. But now it's it's pretty easy to, at scale, seem like you're one of the other citizens in the community, um, which you would have to actually put spies on the ground to do that, which, which of course, countries have done. So that sort of infiltrating or sleeper cell, except now they can do it from anywhere in the world and, and have hundreds of sleepers run by one person. Um, so even though you can't, and, and you can also get information that way from talking. So it's, it's this kind of, um, it's just that it's become easier to scale. Uh, but I, I would, I would also call it propaganda. It's just as the tools have changed, there's new capabilities and new scales. What do you think, uh, Tim? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's always been some kind of psychological warfare. The art of war is all about that. Um, there's, uh, it's nothing new, and, and we've never had reliable epistemic processes, right? I mean, the scientific revolution was a revolution because it might have been the first time where knowledge was meant to be built upon uh, in, in, a, in a formal, structured way, built on, um, on actual physical evidence and that sort of thing, right? Um, so... It's been around forever. This is just a new framing of it, and it's a formalization and a, I would say, a professionalization of it to some degree. You know, the fact that it showed up in in military manuals in the Department of Defense as psyops and that sort of thing. I mean, you have people who are actively focusing as their entire job on um, the kind of propaganda that is more subtle. It infiltrates more and it uses, you know, it's a formal study of the techniques available and the technologies available um, and studying what works and what doesn't work. So I would say essentially it's, it's, a, it's a more mature evolution of what's always been around. Yeah, that's super interesting. I just think about it from my perspective as a teacher and somebody who teaches propaganda and things like that. Sometimes you might be, we might be creating a false sense of security. So when we teach these kind of old ways of determining, it's sort of like the same problem uh, when you're teaching the fallacies. You teach a certain way of identifying them. Well, then people get this kind of um, overwrought sense of self-confidence. Uh, and so then they think, oh, well, then I, I can easily trust my judgment when I'm analyzing information on Facebook or analyzing information on, on the internet. Uh, but then I think back to when I was in college in the 90s and how my parents would regularly send me these warnings about from police officers about things people were doing that were in like comic sans font. And they had all these technical elements to them that I could easily recognize as being a fake document or bad information. But that was lost on somebody from a generation where this technology is very impressive. So I guess where I'd like to go now is what technological things are we doing or do we have that can help run interference on this stuff? Um, it might, it's probably not enough because of the way it's going, uh, to just say, well, we can rely on the youth or we can rely on people being familiar with this stuff to, to know what's fake and what's not. That doesn't seem to really work the way it did with the email chains. So what yeah. kind of technical things do we have? What, what technology do we have to help us? 
I know Tim has a lot of answers to that on uh, from his blog post, but let me uh, dive in on a few. Um, so uh, interesting that you mentioned that trying to teach this can be a problem it's where people get kind of overconfident and it's kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect where they know a little bit and their, but their confidence is outsized. So I think an important thing is also teaching that um, in a lot of these propaganda situations, sometimes and in, in falling for uh, fallacies or, or misinterpreting them, a lot of times it, the people who are more knowledgeable tend to fall for them more. Um, con men almost often like actually focus on um, very intellectual people. People seem intellectual because they're overconfident in their ability to spot con people that perform cons. So um, they tend to be a pretty good mark. So teaching that a little bit, saying that even studies show that even if you know the stuff is going on, you are still um, uh, subject to it and you have to double think on you know every kind of situation that comes for you uh comes that you see and then um you know we're working you know as we teach people this may be the wrong term steve i've heard you talk about critical thinking and stuff but um you know as we can kind of teach um people to think critically and then have resources that they can go to to see how the community has put in all the knowledge into a single place, which is kind of the canonical debate lab um, idea as being one of the tools for this. It, it doesn't cover all of the situations, but it can help. Did you want yeah, to chime I, in there, Tim? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I could go on. This is this, uh, I could I could go on for hours just to answer this one question, but I'll I'll try to make it brief. Yeah, it, go ahead. Start with yeah yeah, <laughs> um, you know to start with. Uh, you know, the canonical debate, which is what our group is working on, I am proposing as uh, an extremely valuable tool or solution for uh, epistemic security. It's not a silver bullet, but it would have, I believe, a major impact on improving epistemic security. But the question is, um, you know, well, well, first of all, going back, what's going on with epistemic security these days? And uh, in the ap academic papers I've read so far, they there seems to be consensus in terms of the accelerated danger, the, the amplified danger that social media and other modern technology poses. Because as you said, you know, over, over history, over time, Tokyo Rose and so on, you had ways of infiltrating and, and doing some sort of propaganda and changing minds. But they were all a lot slower and a lot... Uh, shorter reach in general, or you had to get to the key person, right? You had to get to the New York Times. You had to get to the uh, advisor to the king or something like that, right? Um, and these days, anyone who has the right techniques and strategies can amplify their voice uh, and a lot quicker. So there, there are amplified dangers due to technology, right? Um, and, and as, a, as a side note that I won't go into right now, um, democracies are especially at risk to this sort of thing, um, as we're kind of seeing, but we can talk more about that later. Um, as for techniques that, that can help us, you know, teaching people how to think critically is a major uh, step that can be done. It's not, none of these are, are going to be the full answer, but uh, in a more formal sense, um, what people who study epistemic security have been doing is studying exactly breaking down specific threats 
and specific interventions, right? And trying to pair them up. And so like one example I can give is what's known as gatekeeping, right? Um, so, so you have sort of a, a, a vulnerability, which is the quick ability for somebody to spread misinformation, right? Given the, the internet right now. Um, no, one second. That's okay. Yeah, epistemic security in real life. Yeah, there was an intervention right there. Someone was, was that the government? I, I was getting, exactly, to shut you they're down? coming for me. <laughs> yeah, I, it yeah. happens to me every day. I get it. Uh, but yeah, uh, so, right. So it's easy for people to spread information. So what we used to have is a strong kind of gatekeeping, right? And gatekeeping is a kind of intervention, which means you have somebody with stronger, higher privileges, uh, verifying, validating information and deciding what gets passed on. So that, that could be a newspaper, that can be a publisher, um, that's how it was historically, right? You know, Walter Cronkite, whatever. Um, somebody trusted who's going to, to send on the information. Uh, these days we have less gatekeeping. So one intervention could be introduce more gatekeeping, right? Like Twitter can do it by uh, removing accounts that it thinks is spreading misinformation is a kind of gatekeeping. Now, the problem with that, or uh, censorship is another way of looking at it. the problem with that, and this is what they study, is you have an intervention and they study how that would reduce the uh, damage or the risk of that vulnerability, right? So gatekeeping would slow down the spread of misinformation. But they also study the side effects, which is that it leads to distrust, it leads to censorship, it leads to accusations of malpractice, of, of bad intentions, and it can actually strengthen um, extreme, extreme, extremist groups that are trying to tell you that the elite or whoever has it out against you, right? It, it essentially leads to higher po polarization. So, you know, what's really interesting is you know, there, there are tons of different things that can be done, interventions that can be done to help. And each one of them has its negative consequences as well as its positive consequences. Yeah, very good. Um, it makes me think there's a lot I want to pursue there, including the democracy point. I'm still also thinking about the terrorism point. I'm not sure where to go on all this. This is very uh, rich. But when we think about the gatekeeping model, so the big problem with that, I think, is I think back to like the Hearst newspapers and I think back to yellow journalism and muckraking and the motive of always wanting to circulate more of whatever the thing is that you're investing in to gatekeep, you want people to uh, pay you for because you're putting all this into. And so you have that problem with it too. And uh, journalism is kind of a form of censorship. If you think of it from journalistic ethics, they're looking at a story that has a particular kind of standard but that standard is done kind of ethically. And I wonder what you guys would think about something. This is just something I came on the top of my head is, would it be okay or ethical for Google? I think Chrome is still the most used browser. I don't know the up-to-date stats, but I think more people use Chrome than probably any other browser. Maybe Safari. I don't know about Mac users. But would it be ethical for Google to put a tool or force a tool in there that would pop up and say, hey, you know, this website's information is not, has not been checked or is skeptical. Uh, we're skeptical about the nature of this information. I mean, again, you get the immediate idea that Google would preference people who are hiring them as their advertising or paying for their advertising, but they probably wouldn't be so crass. But I wonder if that would be something that would be like a gatekeeping 
option and how we would feel about something like that. Would that be ethical to mandate in there? Is it something you can't turn off? I know somebody would eventually engineer an ad blocker or something, but uh, there's, you know, there's no stopping the, uh, the coders. But I wonder if something like that would be a good, a good um, stopgap. It certainly wouldn't replace critical thinking, but I wonder what you guys would think of that. Yeah, so it's an, it's an interesting idea. And also that same idea with both opt-in or, or mandatory. Um, um, and to your point, yeah, and, to, you know, and Tim's talking about um, uh, gatekeepers. And, and that's kind of like, you know, we've, we have fewer gatekeepers and also gatekeepers that, uh, whose incentives are kind of even worse aligned with our goals uh, than they have ever been. Um, well, not ever. Let's not say ever, but it seems it seems more recently with uh, the focus on advertising and stuff that um, that the the more uh, they the gatekeepers rile us up, the more money they make. Um, so they're incentivized to uh, to break down our democracy. Actually, um, yeah. So having a you know having an opt in and having it mandatory, but I think having that resource um at least as a, as an opt-in and being publicized would be helpful would be interesting like when you're installing a browser or first starting up and logging in it option it offers you that capability uh, but then we also have the other um problem of you know who who keeps the gatekeepers right who's right how do you determine what is true and what is not the canonical debate lab uh, so far has kind of a theory of saying we want all the information to be available uh, so its database doesn't um, kind of pick sides um, in reasonpedia um, the system is designed to pick sides but the sides can change over time as more information is added so at at no one time can you really kind of look at it and say, oh, this is the answer. Um, so I I hadn't even really thought about then Then if we did have something that kind of was exposing this epistemic knowledge that we store in the Canonical Debate Lab and Reasonpedia and similar systems, is that how can we expose that in a way that it's useful, that it's not overwhelming, um, and, and that all sides of the current debates would find it not not that everyone but you know a majority of the people on both sides of the debate would would find it helpful and not feel like um they are just being silenced or um that their side is being you know trying to not feed into the conspiracy theories that uh that a certain ideology is being limited yeah, I wonder how you'd stop the spillover of the media. You know, though the media is biased, but both sides say that these days, uh, which is kind of funny. And then you think, you know, immediately I thought about Google. I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be good to put in the browser. But then what you're saying is like, there, there might not even be conspiracy here. You remember Google fired their chief AI ethics researcher because they didn't like a paper she wrote because it harmed their bottom line is the way I read that. Now, I don't know yeah. if that's the true story, but that's the way I read it. But um, yeah, what do you think? Jim? Or Billy? Uh, yeah. Once, once again, a lot of things. Um, so you're talking about a specific intervention, right? It, would it be ethical? Um, I'm not an expert on ethics, but I think it would be ethical for mm. them because they're doing it for the right reasons. Would it be a good idea? Mm. I don't think necessarily. And that's where you got to look at the trade-offs in terms of the intervention versus the, the side effect, the third, you know, second order, third order consequences. And it would immediately... 
once again increase the distrust in Google overall, right? Already the, the big tech companies are under fire for for manipulation of information and that's right. So uh, I would not do it if I were them. Um, it, it begs a larger question, which is, you know, how how do you guarantee to people that information is good and that you're being honest about providing this information, especially as a gatekeeper? How can they trust you? Um, and by the way, uh, in terms of the papers I've read about epistemic security, they break it down into essentially four different pieces or uh, categories of epistemic vulnerabilities. One of those is trust. Undermining trust is a major epistemic uh, vulnerability. And so you have fact-checking. Fact-checking works to some degree, studies have shown, but in general has been a failure. And part of that is because you can undermine the trust of the fact-checkers, right? Um, what is it, Snopes that got donations from Soros or one of his foundations or something. And because of that, nobody who, who trusts the, the less, nobody who distrusts the less will ever trust Snopes. It's a, it becomes a joke to them if you show them a fact check from Snopes, right? Because, well, you know, they're controlled by George Soros, right? So how do you, how do you fix or, or bring back trust, right? Um, and I think the answer to that is laying bare your epistemic process and showing that you have a healthy epistemic process. Um, and a healthy epistemic process is one which allows contribution from anyone, one which permits criticism in a healthy way, which shows it has an open process for vetting information. Um, and the more it eliminates biases from the process, the more you can trust uh, that epistemic process, which is why the scientific method is always held up as one That's of the what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It, it, as a process, it's mm -hmm. fantastic. If people are following the process and if it's working, then it's maybe the best one we have at this point. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of questions in terms of the implementation these days. Mm -hmm. um, sure. But, you know, that's what the canonical debate, I think, shines at. It's what we have designed really well is to eliminate bias, allow all voices, um, try, try to eliminate the problems of too much information, right, uh, we, be, by essentially deduplicating things. That's why it's called canonical is, you know, one of the forms of uh, epistemic attack is to attack your ability to absorb information, cognitive overload, um, what we call the uh, attention economy, that sort of thing. This is why do your own research doesn't work is because nobody has time to do all the research themselves, right? Um, so that's, that is an epistemic vulnerability. Um, so uh, what we designed is something that can, you know, take all the repeated information and collapse it down into one thing. So it gets to the essence very quickly and saves you the time, um, but allows all sides in. Uh, and in that sense, by being fully transparent, um, hopefully maintains the trust and shows that we aren't being biased in anything. In fact, the canonical debate doesn't decide what is true. It lets you decide what is true based on all the information, which eliminates the bias of, oh, no, 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 they're controlled by whoever. That's why they say this is the truth, right? We don't say what is the truth. Right. I think that's probably one of the more interesting things about it is when you're thinking about what those standards would be and making those open standards for uh, your process, your epistemic process, like showing your work. 
like you remember math class, right? That's a good metaphor. It's like, I don't care if you got it right. I want to see if you did it based on the standards of good mathematics practice or like uh, science lab. But then you get into issue the issue of whether or not these things that we're deciding are best thought of from a scientific or uh, a logical perspective. There are um, emotions at play and things like that. So I like this idea of open source as a way of saying, well, here are the elements that I think are in there. Maybe... Um, Maybe we're thinking of sharing it like a, uh, a a GitHub version of the scientific method. Um, let me show you my code and maybe you can improve the code as long as you give me credit or as long as you don't change some elements of it. This is sort of like a Creative Commons license for thinking. Yeah, um, and that's kind of what I'm hoping to do on Reasonpedia is you um, list all of your reasons for and against your kind of main point in the article and each reason you have can have the other reasons on why you think that's a good reason and to your point of emotions um those can be brought in as in emotions are is a form of information right so you would say people are feeling this way or i'm feeling this way and people can look at your base assumptions and decide whether or not they agree with it um and then like in the canonical debate lab it's uh it's kind of deduped um so the idea is that you would then have a tree of logic what we kind of call an argument tree um that would kind of be all your reasons in a, in a way that's easy to um to understand reason pd is just a kind of an example of that but the idea is that the the underlying math and technology that you use to weigh up your reasons um and that is mathematically um you, I, I kind of want to say that the, anyone can in, get in there and look at the math and kind of follow it. Uh, it doesn't mean it's true just because it comes up with a score, but at least you know how they got to it. So it is a right. way of showing your work, and it's more than just saying, oh, I, I believe this, this, and this. It's like, well, how much do you believe each one of those, mm -hmm. and why? And, and have that go down as deep as they want to go, and then you can say, well, you didn't go deep enough here, or you can say, oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of some of those reasons. So... Um, so yeah, this reason PD in a way is really kind of a way of showing your showing your work, and it's interesting because you go to any new site, and very few of them cite kind of where their sources. And the ones that do, they really only cite the sources that they accepted. They don't list the sources that they didn't didn't accept. And even in a lot of meta papers, they say, okay, we're going to look at all the pay, all the um, all the studies that have random controlled trials and have this. Oftentimes they don't list. Well, these are all the ones, all the studies that we're aware of that we that fall out of that bucket. So then, when mm -hmm. a new when I'm looking at a study, it's like, well, was this included in your analysis or not? And if it wasn't, was it because it didn't fit, or is it because you just missed it? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, having having that, I think it would be interesting to have that backup. And then I had another thought about um, Steve's suggestion about a um, a. Um, kind of a browser plugin or something it'd be mm -hmm. interesting if it if it's if and this is probably too much to do but if it's like okay this article that you're reading is kind of biased it's only showing this side of the argument and here are all the counter arguments to all that now i i feel that might be a bit overwhelming without some sort of scoring system so it may not be helpful but it's just an interesting kind of thought to play around with when we're trying to figure out how to um, help us out. And uh, I guess another point for the conversation, if we want to talk about is uh, epistemic inoculation, right? So mm. if, if you if you hear the rebuttal 
before you're exposed to the bad information, you're less likely to, to believe the bad information. Um, so having news organizations kind of preempting uh, uh, misinformation was coming out. Of course, we were just talking about we, we don't have a good definition for misinformation, but... That's right. Yeah, nobody really... Everybody, everybody seems to, yeah. but nobody does. Yeah. Um, that's what it feels like to me. But anyway, sorry. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, no. That's that's, good that's stuff basically it. So those are some of the yeah. points that we can we can continue kind of chatting about. Uh, I'll just uh, toss in here a mention of uh, of public editor, which is uh, it's not exactly a partner project of of canonical debate, but we we're in touch with the head of that project, which does more or less what you're talking about. They they have an epistemic process. They have a process they've de defined in which they rate news articles for bias and for fact, factfulness, right? So they've, they've defined a process where it's independent of any individual um, to go through a news article, um, rate sentences based essentially on how, how heavy the rhetoric is as opposed to just telling the facts, um, how biased it seems to be and uh, you know, any other fact check issues that were, were shown up. And so they, they essentially, it's not rating a news source like CNN or Fox News. They rate each individual article that way. And then they have a process where then other people review the reviews. So they have, you know, they, they have quality control on that sort of thing. And so they essentially try to annotate articles and, and rate them on, on how unbiased and so forth uh, they are. That's super interesting. Uh, all of these tools seem really interesting, but they're all kind of like, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of think the teaching of critical thinking is essential here. Uh, especially, well, we have a lot of fact checkers, but we don't really have faith checkers. And it feels like uh, a lot of times we teach people that um, the truth feels really good and it's shameful to admit that you're wrong. So I was thinking about these things as part of the epistemic process is that when we admit we're wrong, we, we do it in the same way as if we have committed a, a bad act is there i wonder if there's a way we could find a pedagogy to teach people that being wrong is a point of pride because it means you went out and looked at other information so fact checking seems like maybe well, a least, quarter, uh, quarter of it yeah go ahead yeah at least changing your mind yeah. uh, and saying why you change your mind is something that should be a badge of honor to show yeah. you are a person who actually analyzes information and is open to that sort of thing. But yeah. that doesn't work in politics for... Sure, right. I, I just yeah. think there's no taste for it. I think we really like the kind of... Somebody earlier, I can't remember who it was, talked about, well, it's not a silver bullet, but I think it might have been uh, you, Tim, talking about some of the tools out there. Um, uh, it's not a silver bullet, but... And I was like, well, thank God. Like, I think we need to get away from this idea of silver bullet. Like, I have the truth. And it could be a badge of honor for a politician on the campaign trail to be like, oh, I was wrong. I was wrong, and I found this. Isn't this great? Uh, think back. There's an example of this from the Lincoln-Douglas debates I think I've talked about before, uh, where um, uh, Lincoln was uh, asked a question by Stephen Douglas, and it's like, you know, 30 minutes for the question, three hours for the response, an hour and a half for the rebuttal. Nobody would tolerate this format today, uh, even if it was on Disney+. Plus. I think that um, uh, Lincoln said, well, I have an answer in mind, but I want to check the facts. So let's adjourn. I'm going to go to the library for about an hour and do some research and I'll come back. Everybody thought this was perfectly reasonable to do. But I think if, um, if you saw a candidate do that today, people would be like, what a loser. So we have a huge wall of this kind of like, I want to call it faith checking, 
um, as well as um, fact-checking. Maybe that needs to be in there, too. Um, we have a comment from the chat. This comes to us from Twitch. You can, of course, if you're watching somewhere else, you can join the conversation on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Steve. This is from Not Tribute. Uh, what happens when those established news organizations are themselves arbiters of bad and biased information? That is tough to solve for because you're basically granting authority where it might otherwise be undue. Who wants to uh, tackle this one? I, can, I think it's a good question to chat about. You want to do it, Bentley? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's definitely an issue, and it's an issue that's been around for a long time. And now that everyone's their own kind of broadcaster, then the question is, what is kind of a news organization? Um, so I don't think we're promoting that news organizations should be authority. Um, they should uh, be stating their information and showing the work. So uh, in this case, actually, we're, we're not even asking, like we were talking about trust earlier, earlier we're, we're kind of uh, reducing the need for trust. If people are showing their work, then you can inspect it at any time. And then if that work can be uh you know added to by other people or discussed by other people then uh authority becomes something that's less necessary um i could add to that too um that uh i, I mean from the, the perspective of epistemic security uh trust is necessary um but is in their analysis creates uh that second order a negative effect or risk, the more you trust something, the more uh, damage that can be done when that trust is broken, right? Um, a, a, an excellent example of this is, you know, the problem of deep fakes and falsified information, that sort of thing. There's a proposal to solve the problem by registering uh, media on the blockchain or registering provenance mm. so that you know oh. if something, you know, is original, um, by immediately getting it on the blockchain with the hash code and everything, mathematically proving that was the original, it hasn't been altered in any way and that sort of thing, um, which is fantastic. And, and done right, it can solve this problem in a major way. But if it solves it so well that there's no reason to question it, it's mathematically provable, it's right there. What happens when somebody figures out a way to hack and actually put in some fake information? You know, the more you trust something, the more you're likely to trust a piece of misinformation that comes out of that trusted source, right? Yeah. So, so that's the danger. Um, you know, it, it, like Bentley said, uh, the goal is to, instead of having to trust, reduce the need to trust, right? I think that was very well put. Um, and, you know, in the case of the news articles, um, what... Uh, what this other group is doing is they're an an analyzing it article by article rather than by new source, uh, a, a, you know, as a whole. So yeah. you don't just trust the source because, you know, how do you trust the source? Hopefully you trust the source because they have a good epistemic process, right? They show their work and that sort of thing. But even then you should be able to break down article by article and not just take it on their word that it's true. Yeah, it'd be nice to kind of bring in some scientific principles in here and, and maybe better than it's been implemented today because uh, our science the, or the replica replicatability crisis. But to, you know, have a... Have <laughs> There's a, a whole other episode there. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, to have a, 
to have a kind of a, a could an expected peer review article process like you know i'm not even going to read an article from the new york times till i know someone from fox news has vetted it <laughs> right or has oh, looked at it and given their feedback right oh, that's so funny. That's it doesn't funny. even pop up until two or three organizations and i'm probably maybe it should be cnbc and fox news um yeah so to where i don't I don't even see it until they've hashed back and forth a couple of times. So we get peer review for news. Yeah. I think, I think Fox news viewers think it's Fox news versus the world, right? It's like Scott Pilgrim versus the world kind of thing. Like the hero. I mean, for me, my, my response to it as a rhetorician is people take a lot of pride in their news sources, right? People are proud to be a New York times or New Yorker subscriber. So what do you do with that? How do you deal with that? Because people will be proud to be a reader of the scientifically vetted site as well. And they'll share, or, you know, they'll be like, that comes with it. So I don't know if you can, um, if we can technically eliminate this idea of trust, but we certainly could be more open about it and say, look, when you trust something, it's because you're identifying with it on a very deep level about who you think you are and who you wish you were. Be aware of that. Be aware of that. This is one of the things that makes, I think, um, debate such a powerful low resolution tool to stuff like this bad and biased information because in a debate, like just a, a very simple kind of face-to-face -face, or even in a forum like this, where we're doing like a stream, a debate is a very low resolution epistemic security tool where people say, well, what about this? Or what about, you know, you, they bring up something old, like, oh, you like the New York Times? What about Jason Blair? How are they checking back for that? Are you aware of, uh, of that situation from years ago? Uh, and these things come up because of that idea to try to, to poke holes in that idea of you know, I don't like this. I feel distrustful of this. I think this is bad in my heart kind of feeling. Uh, so as a rhetorician, I think of all that stuff. Um, and I wonder, if, I think fact check is good. I'm not opposed to fact check, but I feel like there has to be a lot more than that. And we can't um, boil off or reduce those kind of human uh, feelings. So that's what I would respond to. This is like, I think people will find that authority. And then if we, if we do the, like we were talking about earlier, show your work. Well, the reason I like them is because I like them. I really like the way, like, you know, you're not gonna, this is what I tell people. Like I was thinking about doing a, in the pin episode because Thanksgiving is coming up, uh, how to deal with your Fox news relatives, which is a very, very, very close to home topic for me. Um, I'm never going to be able to compete. This looks nice. I mean, I think I'm doing a pretty good job with the streaming thing. I'm never going to be able to compete with Fox News because they've got the chiseled jaw, the beautiful eyes, the the $4,000 suit, the $10,000 studio lighting, the 8K cam with the perfect lens. You can't you can't wish the, these things away. An interesting thing when you're talking about identity, uh, that is that is true. That's a natural thing to identify with your news sources. And also, as you've been sharing those on social media, you get more and more invested because now right. if you find out they do something wrong, what you've been spreading misinformation for the last right. couple of months. Yeah, you feel like you're a part of that media mm -hmm. company. You feel like you're like, oh, yeah. I really am. Uh, to use Kenneth Burke's term, I'm consubstantial with them. Our motives are aligned. I'm trying to do the good work of Sean Hannity or whoever you like. Yeah, and uh, one an interesting thing is I think is, it was I can't remember where I heard about the study, but they were working on some communities. Um, rather than identifying the with community, you identify with your epistemic skills. So in a scientific community, you gain social points, and your identity is more focused on, you know, f 
on the, whether you fact check and peer reviewed and had random control trials. So it's interesting that your identity could be focused on a methodology rather than a specific authority. Yeah. So it'd I think be interesting yeah. to build that as a point of identity and pride. I think that's what, so not tribute offered the follow-up comment. We're talking about, well, it's often what they're not reporting on. Maybe that would be something that could be like, what's our, what's our standard for newsworthiness? And be yeah, more upfront with oh, that. Yeah. Like, why, could, why do we choose yeah. to cover a story, not another one? Occasionally, journalistic outlets will, will say why they choose to cover a story, not another one. Um, uh, the yeah. New York Times has a page on that, I think. Although now that... BBC does too. Yeah. And they, the, they do have... Um, I mean, uh, news organizations do have a, have a amount of sway. And like you were saying, Fox News and large organizations, they have a lot of media presence and stuff. But honestly, there's so many ways to get information out there that I don't think the fact that the large organizations on all sides aren't reporting a story isn't something that's keeping it from being out there. Um, you know, there's there's lots of independent journalists or people that are trying to get information out, spread on social media and things go viral. I mean, it'd be nice if we could have news organizations comment on everything, but they do have to decide where they're going to put their resources. But now that anyone can, you know, we're streaming <laughs> on here. Uh, so now that anyone can do it, it's it's less of an issue than it would have been in the past. Yeah, you, you don't. Um, what you don't get, though, is you get each uh, news outlet kind of reporting stories that are good for their side. Um, yes. And you, you don't get the other news outlet rebutting that by saying no, that you're not going to get a head headliner that says no, that report isn't actually all that important. Right. <laughs> that thing they said isn't actually all that true or whatever. Um, so you don't get a full debate between the news sides, which are, are trying to post, uh, trying to uh, argue for their side, basically. Right. Um, this leads. This is this is another one of those big categories of uh, epistemic vulnerabilities, which is um, you know group identity, tribalism, right? That sort sure. of thing. And yep. and also isolation, group isolation. Uh, enclosed groups that don't allow other kinds of information in. Um, the, there's debates I've read, um, other studies that show there's not as much of a filter bubble as one would think, but there are other techniques that create the same effect, whether or not, you know, essentially instead of the information not arriving, they get the information arriving at a form that's already kind of disinfected and, and massaged to be palatable for their side of the, the argument, right? Mm -hmm. Group affirming, uh, information, right? Um, yeah, and the speed at which thing that, that you have to compete now. Like, how many times a day is the New York Times updated? How many times a day is Fox News website updated? There's like a real pressure on journalistic ethics to fight the need of like, well, we have to circulate this important information, but how do we communicate that the story is imperfect? And if you go back, retractions are never looked at as much as headlines or corrections are never looked as like, I like following this Twitter called, um, what is updating the gray lady? And they show every headline and change and every change to the New York times through the day. And they show you what was taken out. Kind of like, um, like when you're doing a Google shared doc with somebody and they take something out, it like tracks the changes. And that's kind of interesting to see how they'll change the phrasing on political headlines here and there. And you can kind of guess what their motives are for doing that. 
But I think any journalist would be both concerned about this idea of tribalism. Obviously, they don't want that. They're trying to give the story for everybody in a way they use. But I, I also think journalists are very, very, very hesitant about debate. And they say, well, if a story is debatable, that means it's not true, right? That kind of oversimplistic view of debating. So we would only debate something if it was indeterminate. But this is the facts, and these are the interviews, and this is what Governor DeSantis said or whoever. So I wonder if maybe the correct role for these things are sources for us to say, well, I'm not going to trust any of those, but I am going to debate you on it. And debate is a point of pride. It doesn't mean that I am um, questioning what I believe in. People see that as a, as a problem. Like, no, these are the facts. These can't be quite to question. These is to erode democracy itself. That's so how, how do we, yeah. how do we get that into our teaching in terms? And also we're dealing with adult learners here too. People in their forties, fifties, like, like myself, um, those, those things are ingrained at a young age as points of pride, like good work, or you're such a good student, or you're so smart. Like it's deeply connected with these emotional valences, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about, oh gosh, I guess I just blanked out. <laughs> I had so many comments <laughs> coming up yeah. my brain just froze. I, I, um, welcome to my world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a miracle I can get anything out these days, I think. Yeah. Uh, no, I guess I completely lost it. Timmy got. Well, yeah, I'll. Uh, I don't have a reaction to that specific thing. I mean, it, uh -huh. it, it's. Yeah, my main reaction is is something that you know it's related to the canonical debate. Um, is is more trying to visualize how this would look. All of this. Just just imagine, if there were, an actual fact database somewhere that I had the truth about everything, right? Man, when um, I was a kid, there was this thing. It was called Encyclopedia Britannica, and it was in the library. <laughs> Simpler well, times. No, I'm, I'm talking about like a real, imagine if there a real were a real one. actual, yeah. yeah I, I'm not this saying is what I thought about that. It's just funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but an actual unimpeachable source, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Canonical debate would not be that, but it would be as close as maybe we could humanly get, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about granularity. It's the most fine-grained thing possible because every every sentence almost in a news article is some kind of claim, right? That's right. And mm -hmm. so what would it look like? What would news articles look like? What would political speeches look like? What would things look like if there actually existed that database of really fine-grained facts and everybody who's writing a news article or who's writing a political speech or writing a book, whatever, knew they're writing it in a world where the facts are actually already there or they're out there. How, how careful would you be? How would you structure your news article? How would you structure what you're writing, knowing that everything you're writing is going to be vetted and people could link to that thing you said and say, oh, no, no that's not true. Oh, no, well, that, yeah. no, that doesn't make any sense. So now, how does that impact writing? Hmm. I wonder if journalists maybe – I should probably see if I can get a journalist on here because I kind of feel like you're describing their current nightmare situation. I think is what keeps them up at night. I think they feel like they're in that world, you know, in a way, not maybe as, as science fictiony as your, you know, um, well, Asimov yeah, I mean, level. I mean, what your statement before was that they like stating things as fact. Yes, they, they like they like getting to facts. I would I would say uh, yes. journalists really like to have the facts, right? Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't be their nightmare. Their nightmare would be people proposing uh, or, or arguing that their facts are false. 
right? People right. proposing alternative facts and that sort of thing. But if they knew that what they were writing was going to be shown as factful and, and they could be the most factual writer out there, that might be a good thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. It, gives, a, yeah. Them both a, a, it gives them an automatic defense as well, because if they check that source, the, the kind of the community fact base, uh, which be the canonical debate lab, uh, and even maybe even link to it, then they know they can shut down a lot of those conversations where um, where people are, are come in and start challenging the base assumptions of the article that that is really kind of settled by most people, or could be settled in this potential future situation. We, we're not there yet. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, having having kind of a base of facts, and then then we can discuss the conclusions that are coming off those facts or the new facts that are introduced. But oftentimes, an article comes out, and we're not only hashing the new, rehashing the new facts, we're rehashing all the old facts mm -hmm. um, all the way down the line, and it's just overwhelming. And then people give up. Yeah, yeah. I think there's like a balance between the responsibility of cluing the readers into what's been covered already and where the story's coming from, and then serving those those deeper readers. Like, for me, I'm, I always really prefer the um, the news stories in, like, the London Review of Books, because they assume you've read all those day-to-day -day stories. And then they're going way, way, way deep. But that's not for everybody. Uh, but it's also a preference. So when we think about fact, we can think of a working definition as all the information that's situationally relevant and vetted for this issue. And then that is always, that's always a moving sphere, isn't it? That's always a moving boundary because as the issue changes, then other things become more relevant. Other information, as information becomes more relevant, we might call it a fact. So it's kind of a moving ball. So what you're really proposing here, what canonical debate really seems to be doing is operating in a different mode of thinking than we usually do when we think of linear processed information or information processed um, in non-fungible text. I receive a paper, a newspaper twice a day. We're still kind of teaching that, aren't we? We're still kind of teaching. I bet if I Googled right now uh, argumentation syllabi in my field for the argumentation course, one of the assignments would be letter to an editor. I can't think of anything more irrelevant for teaching people how to argue than that assignment. But uh, come for me out there, rhetoricians, if you if you want to. But what would be, it also reminds me of an anecdotal story of my younger sister. When she was in college, she wasn't sure how to do Chicago citation. And I happened to be at her place for the holiday, for Thanksgiving or whatever. I was like, oh, here's how you do it. Here's how you do Chicago. Da, da, da. And she was trying to figure out how, because she was citing the same article many, time, many times in her paper, like undergraduates do. They'll cite like four things. They cite them like a bunch of times because they don't want to get dinged for plagiarism. She was trying to figure out how to make it hyperlink. So she's like, why do I have to retype that site again? And that really kind of blew my mind. So what we're really thinking is an entirely different way of consuming relevant information, a.k.a. news. A whole different literacy is, I think, what you're suggesting, which kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, and, and as we're going through this, you don't really – it becomes amazing on how fragile we realize our current epistemic process and our human brains are. So one of the great things about uh, this kind of making information grow um, and over time and, and deduplication is that you're actually distributing your wisdom and intelligence among multiple people. Because Tim could fill out one part of the graph of knowledge and I could fill out another part and then we could have two people review our work. But that means not one of us had had to find all the facts and all the information and we're trusting that many eyes you know um 
kind of help the situation. Right. Yeah. This is sort of like, um, you know, I always talk about on the show, Mercier and Sperber's book, the enigma of reason. What is reason? Is it best described as an evolutionary thing for people or what? And how they're always talking about how the best way to think about it is we evolved, we created reason as communicative creatures in groups. And maybe the issue is that most of the time now we're evaluating information solo. We're not doing it with other people. We're doing it on a screen with the illusion of other people typing comments, typing rather rude comments sometimes. Um, and providing links and, and like the phrase, do your own research, I think only tracks, we could do the Enneagram or whatever it's called, uh, only tracks along with the, with Facebook becoming less a place to share dog pictures and more a place to share election fraud stories, uh, and politics, which is mostly what Facebook is for me these days. Um, I wonder, I wonder if there's a place to say that what we need is more in-person group conversation a low-tech solution to this as part of our epistemic security is facing your opponent in the flesh and saying you're wrong changes things. It really changes things in a very tangible way. So on that point, I'm not sure. I think we've mentioned some of these groups in the past, you Steve, but I'm not sure how many you're familiar with, but there's like the Listen First Project, which helps people kind of listen to the side. There's Braver Angels that brings together Republicans and Democrats to have more discussions than debates. Um, there's living room conversations. Uh, so there are a couple groups kind of working on that. Um, my concern, and I think Tim's concern is that, that those are kind of ephemeral and each person has to learn. It's a very, um, uh, it's, it's very time consuming. Uh, and so we're hoping to, um, convert all of that into, also kind of a written form so you consume it a little bit more quickly and at the level of depth that you want that you feel is necessary um but yeah but there's a lot of great projects that i think we um um that that are worth looking into and I, we probably need to make a list of those for for people viewing to um so that they can explore that but those are some great projects yeah, I think so. I'm familiar with Braver Angels. I talked to them a couple times. They wanted to do something at my university. I never really got back to them, so so much for interaction, communicative failure. Um, and then listening to, yeah, I think the time investment here is huge. The time investment is huge. And I always tell my students, you know, they say, wow, it takes a long time to argue and debate and do it right, to do it in an in a epistemically, I guess when I say do it right, I mean an epistemically valid way or an epistemically defensible way where you're listening, you're following up, you're researching, things like that. Um, and I always say, well, who's in whose interest is it to have it, to have you not have any time for this? Who benefits from not having the time to look deeply into claims and deeply into counter arguments? Who's benefiting from that? Who's benefiting from like, Oh, I got to go. I got to go to work. Um, is it democracy? Is it something else? Yeah, right. The epistemic, or or just the or the uh, or the capitalist who says, um, actually, I'm in favor of a, not to name names, but I'm in favor of a digital town square, and it's so important. I want to own it, but also PayPal. Right. <laughs> not to name names. Um, <laughs> right. You know, one one thing I would definitely say, you know, in the name of debate in general, um, is it breaks down one of those epistemic vulnerabilities we talked about, which is isolation, 
tribalism and that sort of thing, because putting people in contact with one another forces them to interact with the the other the ideas on the other side. Um, you know, uh, on the other side of that, we have a major epistemic uh, strategy or hybrid warfare strategy, right? Which is um, populism. You know, we could we could call it populism. Um, not doesn't have to be traditional populism, but populism as a strategy in general, political strategy is to create divides, right? It's to kind of give simplistic explanations for everything, associate all problems in the life of your your group with the other. You, you essentially make the other side the other, you demonize them, you blame everything on them, and you create a very simplistic divide that gives you a good hold on your half of, of that people pie or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's a major epistemic strategy, and it's a way you can create warfare, you know, it's a way you can win elections, <laughs> for sure. Um, it's a way, if you're on the outside wanting to break apart uh, a target, your strategy is to try to create a division within them by defining two sides and making them hate each other, right? And debate has you if you're going one on one and meeting with people in person, you ha you're breaking down that sense of the other by humanizing people once again. And so, like, I think that's a very important intervention or strategy. Yeah, I think having a a person in front of you is important and useful. Um, I wonder also think though that um, kind of like Steve, like you mentioned earlier that, you know, having time to go back and do some research and having time also in the middle of the between conversations to rethink your position and really mull over what the other person said. Uh, I find oftentimes I'll have a big argument with someone and then find out a month later that they've actually changed their mind somewhere in the process. And of course they didn't bother telling me. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why would they? Yeah. And whether I was part of that or not. And then yeah. I find myself later on the next couple of days after like feeling like I trounced someone that I'm like, Oh, well maybe, you know, maybe they made a few good points there. Maybe I should look that up. <laughs> um, so having this space in between, but also uh, an interesting thing about doing it in kind of a technologically or a written way, as opposed to in person, is that you can hear the the reasoning and the logic from the best spoken. So if you get 20 people that that uh, think of something different than you and they all come together and, and work on the best phrasing of their side of the argument, then you can dive into it much quicker and uh, and think about it on your own in a much slower process and not have the added pressure of being in public or, or, or thinking about what what's happening in that other person's brain um, while I'm formulating my response. I mean, you should be thinking about them, uh, but thinking about also, you know, how am I dressed and, you know, did I brush my teeth before I got here and so all that extra kind of issue. Um, so it's an interesting to have all of those modalities and, and they also kind of strengthen because as you're working with other people on the side and you find out, oh, they're not, um, they're not all crazy. Then when you go on a debate and you're reading someone's Facebook post, you're, you're less likely. And then also if you see the best kind of tweet from like 20 people, not the most egregious tweet, which is the ones that get retweeted, but if if people get together and think, oh, this is the this is the thing we think would be most convincing to someone that doesn't agree with us, which isn't 
actually there, there's no social media that that promotes that but if we had that then um you know that would that would take a lot less of your time and your effort to understand and maybe provide a useful counter yeah yeah this is what makes me think debate is a big part of the solution here like traditional kind of classroom debate because you know, there's a switch, the tradition of switch side debating, which a lot of listeners are very familiar with, had some controversy, not very controversial anymore, but the idea of assigning students to defend a side, whether they care about the topic or not, gets you that kind of um, laboratory environment where you'd say, well, this, I think this would be most appealing to people who would believe this. And then you can either go one of two ways. You can say, well, what's the best evidence for that? Or you can say, what assumptions are you making about that person and what they also believe that are questionable? And I think this is where we dissolve that, like both of you are saying, dissolving the 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 the, the wall between the other and, and us and recognizing ourselves in the other. So yeah. it can go either way in debate education. I think uh, most of the time, since debate is organized around sportified competitions or bad, bad game design, uh, it's like, okay, yeah, we've got them, we've got them crushed. There's no response to this, this is the best evidence. And then they're shocked when the judge doesn't like the argument. And then that can be a conversation later, but normally it's about how bad the judge is at thinking. So in a lot of ways, it mirrors everyday news consumption habits and the same problems we have with epistemic security. But it could be fun as a model or a smaller model of that. But I do think if we think about it more as a classroom activity and something that complements information literacy and technological literacy, which are, I think, two of the things we've been talking about today, I think then that would be like um, what we would call oralcy. In the British, call it oralcy or oral literacy, how to express my opinions and how to listen to the opinions of others. It might be the third part here for epistemic security. Yeah, the having in those kind of classroom um, opportunities, something where you do research, you know, beforehand, which of course you're talking about, which it's interesting, that brings up kind of a story from Society Library, Jamie Joyce, uh, friend of the pod. Um, uh, she talks you know, about- You never had her on In the Bin. I probably should. No, yes, she definitely should. I wonder if Although she would come on. She's I don't know. busy now. She's been on several- Profile that's podcast. true she's been on better podcasts than this can ever hope to but be. i think she'd enjoy it yeah, um i hope so uh but she would tell you know she would she often is bringing people on and and her team has to has to dig into both sides of the debate and bring up all the points no matter how crazy they are um and uh, you know one oftentimes people have you know their opinions when they come to the project and she forces them no you need to go in and research this even though it seems stupid and they come back invariably going, oh, I had no idea that there was some actual substance behind this. <laughs> yeah, I uh, love it when that happens. And the, just the stories she relate about that. And then, and also finding other things where someone was saying like, oh, climate change is wrong because of, is not true because of Saturn. And it's like, mm -hmm. we got to investigate that. And, and they did. And it turns out there was something about how Saturn's rings formed was some scientific evidence against the belief and i mean they were able to debunk it but it's amazing how there's um that investigating the other side can really kind of open your eyes yeah that's super funny saturn's rings climate change this is something um earlier i think it was related to the comment too i wanted to say is that this idea of like in in scholarly research in professional research there are certain research standards or standards of what would be included in an essay or not included in an essay that i think can really thwart epistemic security when that information is so readily and easily available it's almost like the problem of the gutenberg bible the catholic church had where it's like no 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 that's not what that verse means and you have 
thousands of years of scholarship looking at different languages and what that means and the the place where that Bible verse was written and da 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 da. And then you have like the Protestant revolution saying, well, no, I can access it and I can read it and in my heart. I know it's true. So it's the same thing goes for things like that Saturn stuff and everything. It's like, oh, I'm smart. I can read the scientific article and um, uh, I can share it on social media and say what it means. Uh, can you? Are you trained well enough to read that? How much of the, democratiz the democratization of information might need to come with uh, stereo instructions? Uh, yeah, and that gets us back to also how, you know, science communicators, um, there's a lot of great, great ones out there today, but, you know, every every week you see an article about how chocolate is great for you in this way and yeah, bad for exactly. you in this other yeah. way. And, and they're also quoting articles that have had no peer review yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe there should be some sort of like limit to where you don't report on something till it's been through a peer review process and you don't report on something that it has. And then you don't just report on that. You know, if you're saying something's good for them, you need to talk about it holistically, not just, you know, that it has tannins in it and, and, the, <laughs> and the tannins are 0. 0.00001. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, that's, you know, and how many times do scientists go, uh, that's not what my article said. <laughs> like, yep. Not even close. It's yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think teaching people to look for the, the facts or the best information without showing them how information is always packaged and facts are always packaged and showing them those ways and maybe opening that up a little bit more might be a little bit better. So like one of the things that's controversial right now, critical race theory, which you hear about on the news all the time really started as a movement of saying, look, the way the law is packaged and the way that the law is shaped publicly excludes people of traditional minority identities. And it's based on them not being a part of it at all. So what would happen if we rewrote legal um, articles in a way that would be accessible to almost everybody? So they're writing like narratives and things like that about the history of the law and what, what the politics are behind legal interpretation and stuff, which bothers a lot of people. That's why it's so controversial. And why it upsets so many people is because it shows that something that is supposed to be purely based on fact and purely based on the evidence is actually highly, highly politically motivated. And worse than that, highly politically motivated based on something like race, which everybody claims not to be a racist, right? Nobody would claim to be a racist. Uh, even when they're making racist arguments, they'll say, no, I'm just saying the truth. Or, no, no. So this, that's why it really upsets people in my uh, view. So I wonder if there's um, a way to kind of teach... I guess now there's a fourth thing, which is this idea of like, how are things packaged? How are things put together? And I'm thinking about the pleasure of unboxing videos. Is there like an epistemic security equivalent of an unboxing video for like a New York Times story or for a Fox News story or for a scientific journal? Um, I wonder if there's enough bandwidth out there to support that, even though this is already going to take most of your day just to read one article about Putin and determine if it's true or believable. Well, yeah, that all gets to the uh, attention economy, right? Cognitive mm -hmm. uh, limitations, uh, and and that you know that's the whole problem with do your own research, right? Um, not only is it too much time and nobody can do all the work, but also there are so many things that are so complex that you know you can only be an expert in one thing essentially. Right. If you get a PhD, <laughs> you're you're expanding knowledge on a very tiny piece of, yeah. of our the entire part of human knowledge and you're qualified for that one thing but not mm -hmm. to break down something else 
um, which is why we need trust, right? Yeah. Um, and the canonical debate tries to eliminate that need to some degree and all the work it has to, you have to do to analyze that article on Putin because everything gets connected down. And, you know, at high levels, you can see the average person making the argument way down at the bottom about, you know, is this true? Putin was in a photograph with whatever person and they were negotiating whatever. And like, that's somebody who's an expert or, you know, works with the, the, the State Department or whatever. Somebody whose life is studying Putin is going right. to be negotiating these little claims about that person. And you can trust that those experts are contributing their knowledge and hashing that out down where they're qualified to doing that. And that bubbles up to something that is more understandable at the high level. Right. Uh, the way to fight um, cognitive limitations or fight uh, attention deficit is to create the tools that do that work for us, right? In a, in a trustworthy way. That's a problem, right? You create the tools for our epistemic processes to be more efficient, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and trustworthy in the way of showing the work, right? So yeah. they don't have to read through all the stuff, but they know they can, and maybe they have, you know, their source, uh, their the news organizations that, that they like, ha they know they have gone and gone through and vetted the facts in there and stuff like that. Um, so then, then you get these news organizations or their proxies, um, you know, having the, the deeper level arguments rather than just this constant ring of the top level conclusions and no one getting down and actually discussing and documenting the reasons behind it. Yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like sometimes the more interesting parts of these public debates get lost in that. No, it's true. It's not. It's not true. That's bad information. It's not instead of, well, what should we believe? What's best to believe, which is the showing your work question, I would say, for the purposes of this conversation. But it could be a lot of things. Uh, not to open up a can of worms in the last like 10 minutes or so, but maybe this is a role for AI. Maybe this is a role for AI that, you know, we have IBM's Project Debater, which is trying to show that a computer can debate. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that is, except maybe a, a fun project. I don't know about the applications of that beyond um, being able to do it. Because like, I, I think debate is one of these things that humanizes people and shows you that the bottom line buy-in on any epistemic frame is to believe that by virtue of the fact that you have a human mind, you've been given a human mind, you are worth speaking to. Like to refuse to debate somebody's to say, well, no, you're not, you know, you don't, I don't believe in your capacity at this very basic level. So it's quite insulting to kind of, um, to do that, but that's kind of where we are, I think, in terms of respect. Yeah. But I, I wonder if AI is the place for this, because the AI could come in and say, uh, no, this isn't really, um, deter this is indeterminate or something. It could do it very quickly and save us a lot of times to where we could have that larger argument about what we should believe or what, what should be acted on. So I, I think AI can do a lot to help us kind of like gather all the different opinions in a space and a lot of the quanti quoted evidence. Uh, but what we find when we start investigating, like Society Library was talking about uh, the closing of the nuclear power plant in uh, California, and they found that there were nine different positions and over 4,000 different claims. Um, but when you go and you look at those claims at the very bottom level claims, there are assumptions in there that no one has ever stated. So that text doesn't exist. So the AIs can't learn it. Um, 
so the AIs do have a kind of a, a limit in how far they can go and it kind of the humans now, I mean, you know, in another five, 10 years, AI may be able to do this. Um, but as the, the way the AI is programmed right now with learning off existing texts, um, uh, just no one has actually thought this deep about both sides of the debate. Um, so there's, there's no way for them to extract that information, but it can get us, it can still save a lot of time in the documenting and writing things down and pulling things together. And then maybe at some point in the future, once we have a good enough data set, we can try and train the AI. Um, I think before I, we let the AI go loose on it, we need to figure out how to do it manually. <laughs> I take actually the opposite uh, opinion or takeaway um, from from specifically the Diablo Canyon case, which is I think AI would be fantastic for identifying very quickly the underlying assumptions, right? Because that's the kind of thing it would be good at is breaking down all the information into claims. The you know uh, AI has gotten relatively good at that and will get a lot better. I think in, in the near future, we'll be able to have AI quickly analyze and organize this sort of thing. Um, and by doing so, you know, you get a lot of syllogisms, a lot of uh, logical arguments that if there are hidden um, premises, the AI is going to be the first one to identify that. It's going to be, well, these points don't line up logically, so there must be something missing there, right? And I think AI can really help with that. Um, the danger of AI is exactly what we're talking about of showing your work, right? Um, nobody trusts AI algorithms at this moment. And there's books written about the biases in AI. So trying to have AI think for us is an extremely dangerous proposition. Um, there's a lot of money being put into this. There's a lot of money being put into both sides of having AI do this for us, kind of think for us, and have uh, into how do we defend ourselves, protect ourselves from AI, which they see as essentially a, a, a what do you call it, a global threat to humanity, <laughs> existential threat going forward. So if, if you're looking for money, what you want to do is write a project about how AI is going to think for us or how you're going to come up with a plan to protect ourselves from AI. There's a lot of money going to those things. But I think, um, you know, the real way through this is a hybrid approach, right? Uh, AI is a tool and uh, essentially... Uh, canonical debate lab, we're positioning ourselves in the world of uh, what's called collective intelligence. And so it's it's an area of research and tools and, and thinking around how can we as a species uh, join our intelligence together, think together, collaborate, uh, make collective decisions and work together more efficiently, right? Um, and that's going to require AI and that's going to require other tools, but we can't take the humanity out of it or we're going to be in trouble, right? Yeah, Terminator. I always think of Terminator when I think about the dangers of AI. Maybe that's a little overblown Hollywood entertainment there, but when it decides to Or the Paperclip before... Factory, right? Terminator yeah. or the Paperclip Factory. Yeah. Or War Games, if you really want to cut. War Games is a good one, too. Greetings, Professor yeah. Falcon. That's a good one, too. Well, we're almost out of time here. We got a couple of minutes left. I, I, one of the things about AI that I want to say is it's funny how much work and effort goes into this thing that I know that I can pretty much hit with equal accuracy with any undergraduate course 
I can walk in and be like, okay, so there's a community in California arguing about whether or not to shut down a nuclear reactor. What do you think the arguments are going to be on both sides? And we could spend 20 or 30 minutes on that fill up the board and probably hit it, probably hit most of those big. Th so there's something about the human mind can position yourself in a controversy you have no stake in and come up with those talking points. The question is, which are the ones that are supported with the best research? Which are the ones that are um, actually relevant to the people in the community and not just based on a stereotype? But filtering those two out, I think you're going to have a pretty good thing. And that's the old rhetorical practice of commonplace, of the commonplace, of finding those things that are the sites of where arguments tend to gravitate in the public. And we're pretty good at doing that uh, with non-artificial intelligence, which is what I like to call myself as a... I believe I'm a non-artificially intelligent algorithm, but there's no evidence for that. I think it would get caught on the fact checker pretty quick. But um, I, I think that's so interesting, these ancient methods of trying to identify the um, what they called the stasis points of public argument. Where's the controversy going to live? Most of us are pretty attuned to that. The only question is, are we going to believe the experts or not? In the context, are we going to be able to find the right information to make a good decision? Are we going to be able to overcome our pride and trust and uh, our intense emotional confidence to reverse that decision in the future if we find that we chose the wrong information? So uh, all these things are hot questions for me in teaching people how to argue. Because a lot of people are like, why do you teach debate? Why are you teaching the thing that's destroying the country? Um. But uh, I, I'm sure you're not on that side, guys. We're all friends here, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's it only destroying to, the country because people aren't doing it well. Right. It would be like um, it's like I always take the um, the uh, the the uh, example from Al uh, Alistair McIntyre in his book After Virtue. He says, "Imagine a world where you're trying to make prescription drugs and you're trying to create chemicals and fertilizer and things, but the only thing that has survived from chemistry is a torn periodic table." That's where we are in our public dis discussion of the virtuous and the ethical because most of the, the inheritance of humanity in terms of the intellectual thought of this was destroyed, has been destroyed uh, because of accidents and various ideological conflicts and things like that. But um, it's just like Not Tribute said, I'll put this comment up, I don't know if you guys saw this in the chat, um, about, um, it's kind of, it kind of goes on from what is said here but it's the idea of like, well, maybe just basic good critical thinking is what we need to teach people. Uh, because the, you know, the CRT critique, I think he's, I think not tribute, I think you are, uh, I don't know what your, what your gender is, but I think you're right. I think that um, it's kind of obvious that the power structure is going to benefit and reflect, but that obviously doesn't mean that the law doesn't work and doesn't provide good things. But that might not be obvious to somebody who's gone down the rabbit hole on that evidence and they're like storming and defending the truth with this vehemence. So, you know, part of that, part of the whole epistemic security thing is trying to check. I mean, I guess it just, I guess critical thinking just goes back to system one, system two thinking like the Daniel Kahneman stuff and thinking reason, uh, thinking fast and slow or in the failure Sustine uh, book. Um, uh, what's that book called? Nudge. I don't know yeah. if you guys have read these books, yeah. but this is about like the problems, like there's so much good in, in everyday thinking that just kind of gets lost because we're just technologically illiterate. We don't understand the power of these technological things. We're isolated. All the things we talked about, we don't understand how to read. We're not, we're illiterate in terms of how data comes to us through the internet and how overwhelmingly powerful it looks. Like even, even this, with the exception of this stupid bird, 
It's been quiet all morning. The stupid bird I was wondering who's. <laughs> I was wondering whose bird that was. I have a fig tree right out my window, even though I'm at a very high altitude. And the, it's been quiet all morning, and the bird is combined is announcing that there's still figs. Um, that's what's going on there. But anyway, uh, any any final thoughts? I think we're almost done here. Yeah, let me throw one thing out that's too big sure. to get into right now. But I, um, you know, you're you were talking about whether we trust the experts and that we could sit down and kind of think about the top level things. I think one of the problems is the depth of the debate. So we're not going deep enough. And uh, I have a claim that I haven't proven that our great me too our human brain is not actually capable of taking all the information and in, and coming to a conclusion of many of these things like we're talking about the um the whether we should close the thing the uh the uh, nuclear power plant i don't think there's there's there might be one or two humans whose brains can actually take in those four thousand comments and analyze all the information and come to a rational decision mm-hmm so I think without a tool, without like at least a piece of paper and a pen, um, like, you know, I don't, I, when I do my finances, I go on my bank website. I don't try and remember everything I've purchased sure. That's right. in my head and try and calculate my balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like as a starting point, you say, well, I kind of need to save yeah. this much. I kind of need to do that much. And then you go to the details after that. Yeah. But I think you, like the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. The, yeah. And, and you remember the last time you looked it up, you don't, you don't check your bank account every time you go and buy some gum, right? So there's right. a, there's a balance between knowing where your brain can handle the, uh, the process. And then when, you know, knowing when you kind of need a tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's also part of the, um, the epistemic security pedagogy, I guess is what I'm, that's kind of where I've bent this conversation. I feel like, uh, final and thoughts, Timothy. Where you, yeah. Well, <laughs> any final thoughts, Timothy, where are you, uh, at the end of this? And uh, maybe where should listeners go to get more? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can put the website back up again. Actually, uh, you mean which website? The uh, the article Can, or uh, the... canonical? Canonical debate. Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you we can, don't you have a link to your article there. on that, do we? We probably should. We have the medium, I think, and and it's on our medium page. Is it? It better be there. Anyway, we have the white paper which describes our thinking on the solution to these problems circa like four years ago or something. <laughs> we need to update it. We've done a lot of thinking since then. Um, uh, going back to the democracy question, I just kind of want to leave you with this thought about um, epistemic security, which is um, the idea of, or just understanding how vulnerable democracy is to epistemic attacks because uh, it, the effectiveness of a society, right? Let's just say a nation, um, is its ability to react to changing conditions, right? Um, react to attacks, react to things that are happening. And that essentially goes through phases of collecting information, analyzing and digesting the information, coming up with plans, choosing a plan, right? Um, when you're Leading, when you have an authoritative state, a dictatorship, or a philosopher king, that can be pretty quick, right? Um, when you're dealing with a democracy of hundreds of millions of people, that gets pretty hard, right? Because everyone, you have to disseminate the information across the entire society. The society has to come up with positions on that thing, and then they have to hash out the positions, and eventually they have to make a decision based on that. Um, 
And so, as you, you know, it, it becomes pretty clear that a democracy is a lot slower in that sort of thing, especially when uh, it's having trouble agreeing on facts. And so epistemic attacks, the epistemic security of a democracy is extremely vulnerable. And there are attacks both of providing false information, but also just disrupting this process of agreeing on what is correct and agreeing on what kind of decision to take, right? So especially for a democracy, the issue of epistemic security is extremely important. Um, and, you know, I'll be eventually breaking down different attack vectors and that sort of thing, comparing it to the canonical debate. Um, so, you know, if you look at that at our Medium page, at some point I'll put out another article. It took me about two months to write the one article that's there, so I don't know when I'll do it. But, hey. uh, you know, I'm happy to discuss in more depth this topic uh, going forward. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, it's like eating a nonpartisan elephant. I'll do it one bite at a time. I want to make sure that we stay neutral. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bentley. Thank you, Timothy. Canonical Debate Labs available. CanonicalDebateLab.com, which I showed the website a few times during the broadcast. Uh, but that's it for this uh, for this episode of In the Bin. That's it. You can watch this if you're just catching us live at the end here. You can watch this on Spotify uh, or the uh, on YouTube or the VOD on Twitch. But Spotify, anchor.fm slash in the bin is the best place to get all of the stuff and if you like what we're doing here why not consider supporting in the bin ko-fi.com slash diviano and uh kick me a couple of bucks and maybe i can actually stream in 1080 one day i don't know it's kind of expensive to do this i was surprised at how expensive it is but uh yeah if you like what we're doing show us a little support until then, I'm Dr. Steviano. Thank you to my guests from Canonical Debate, and we'll see you on the next episode, which will be next week at this time, about fallacies in union organizing with uh, Dr. Kate Morrison. See you then. Thanks for watching.